This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, you are very welcome to this afternoon's joint address hosted by the IIEA. My name is Emmanuel Schoen Quinlevin from University College Cork. UCC, as it happens, is part of UNIQUE, one of the European-wide alliances of universities called for by President Macron during his La Sorbonne speech in 2017. We are privileged to be joined today by both the French Minister for Europe and Foreign Affairs, Jean-Yves Le Drian, and the French Minister of State for European Affairs, Clément Beaune, who have generously uh, agreed to uh, take time out of their scheduled visit to Ireland to speak to us. They're actually addressing us from the French Embassy in Dublin. Our thanks also go to the Ambassador Vincent Guerrand and the French Embassy for their support in this event. As you all know, this is also taking place on the special occasion of the IIEA's 30th anniversary. The French Minister for Europe and Foreign Affairs, Jean-Yves Le Drian, and the Minister of State for European Affairs, Clément Beaune, will speak to us for about 15 minutes each. And then we will go to the Q&A with our audience. You will be able to join the discussion using the Q&A function on Zoom, which you should see on your screen. Uh, please feel free to send your questions in, to send your questions in throughout the session as they occur to you. And we will come to them once both ministers have finished their presentations. A reminder that today's presentations and Q&A are on the record. This event is also being live streamed. Both of our speakers will speak in French. Interpretation is available from French to English and to avail of this live service, you can click on the interpretation button represented by a globe icon on the bottom right of your screen. If you're on, on an iPad, you can find that icon by clicking more in the upper right corner of your screen. And finally, if you're on a phone, you should have a pop-up appear. You select English to hear the interpreter. If you do not wish to avail of this service, you do not need to activate it or you can select off. These instructions are going to be posted in the chat box now and you can refer to them at any time. Please feel free to join the discussion on Twitter using the handle at IIEA and the hashtag IIEA30. Let me now formally introduce to you our speakers before I hand over to Minister Le Drian to begin. Jean-Yves Le Drian is the Minister for Europe and Foreign Affairs of France, a position he has held since May 2017. Previously, he served as Minister of Defence from April 2012 to May 2017. As he mentioned in his article to the Irish Times last January, Minister Le Drian served as an elected representative for Brittany for many years. He was the mayor of Lorient from 1981 to 1998, and the president of Brittany's Regional Council from 1998 to 2004. Clément Beaune is the Minister of State for European Affairs of France, a position he has held since July 2020. Previously, he served as Special Advisor for European Affairs of President Emmanuel Macron from 2017 to 2020, and was at the heart of the landmark speech uh, given in La Sorbonne by President Macron in September 2017. It has to be noted that his appointment was welcomed with clear enthusiasm by European capitals. Chers Messieurs les Ministres, nous sommes ravis de vous accueillir en Irlande. 
La parole est à vous, Monsieur le ministre Le Drian. Chers amis, bonjour. Dear friends, uh, good uh, day. So I don't know what uh, tomorrow's historians will say uh, about the question that you have asked us to desk with you. What will Europe look like in 2021? But I believe this is something that will be of great interest to them because our continent is truly at a crossroads. And I'm sure that tomorrow's historians will also refer to uh, the larger question, the world in 2021. We have been plunged in a pandemic for more than a year now, and it has shown our strengths and both our weaknesses. This is a world that is highly interdependent between countries and between um, continents. And these are ties that bring us together for better, for worse. And this has strengthened over the past decade due to um, an acceleration of trade and exchanges. This is also a world of common threats, of common challenges that we must take up. Uh, the, the, the threat of COVID-19, but also of climate change, of the erosion of biodiversity, terrorism, and also of the deepening of inequalities. This is a world that is also experiencing a great deal of violence. And there's a lot of flower plays that are occurring right now. And um, this is becoming more uh, apparent. There is an intensification of international competition that it takes place at all levels. Before we talked about hard power and soft power, but now there are no lines. And in all areas, there is a high deal of uh, competitivity and confrontation. This is also apparent uh, in the implementation day in and day out of uh, a dangerous uh, type of antagonism. And some uh, actors even call into question human rights and uh, the very foundations of the multilateral system that we have built together after uh, World War II. So this world, Europe of today, well, the world of today, this is something that Europe looks straight at. And this was not always the case. For too long, uh, Europeans felt like they were sheltered from uh, the troubled waters of international um, crises. For a long time, uh, Europeans refused to speak uh, the language of power and underestimated their own strength, their own interests. And for too long, Europeans uh, uh, confused openness and, and naivete. Therefore, I believe that 2021 will be a decisive moment in terms of the European awakening, uh, thanks to which we are leaving the era of innocence in order to fully um, arrive in uh, the century of um, upsets, but also of new opportunities. And thanks to the strength of European solidarity, we have truly underscored who we are. This is a decisive year because we have really underscored our willingness to uh, master our own fate by uh, strengthening our sovereignty. This is a decisive year because we have moved forward with partners who, of goodwill who have accepted to work with us in order to uh, move forward on the international scene and to express uh, the, a voice of a new humanism by um, refusing the destruction of our common goods. So we have solidarity, we have the affirmation of our destiny and our willingness to act on the international scene. And this is what is happening in 2021 in Europe. And this of course is uh, directly in line with uh, the speech of President Macron, um, the La Sorbonne speech, which he uttered at the beginning of his term of office. And it is an affirmation of what I'm describing today. I had referred to solidarity 
and also to this awakening uh, because it manifested itself, uh, of course, during the pandemic crisis. Uh, and we um, focused on uh, this issue, whereas it was not in under the competency of the European Union. So the Europe of health is something that we uh, took up in a pragmatic manner and uh, helped us weather the pandemic. This is a solidarity uh, that was already marked by efforts of coordination, uh, whereby we have been able to uh, manage as best as possible the European space together. We had to make some dis difficult decisions and we had to adapt our health uh, rules. And this is a new form of solidarity that we uh, implemented. And this uh, form of solidarity has also been uh, marked by the historical recovery plan um, that is going to generate results very quickly, whereby we have borrowed uh, as a block, a EU block, and we will move forward as uh, the European Union block. So this has been an important year in that respect. Solidarity is also manifested via the manner in which altogether we were able to initiate our vaccine uh, strategy by uh, negotiating uh, amongst all 27 member states and by mobilizing ourselves um, and, and, and by ensuring that industrialists um, respect their commitments and also by ramping up our own production capacities. We also anticipated uh, the development of new uh, vaccines, in particular through the ERA incubator and also by being uh, very uh, vigilant regarding the introduction of new vaccines against uh, vaccines. None of this uh, was apparent prior to this. This was not written in stone. And therefore we had to show our, uh, ourselves to be extremely responsive in order to go beyond the pre-established frameworks and to uh, ensure that we could leverage a new strength. As such, we were able to give new meaning to the words European solidarity. There's also a second aspect of this European awakening. Indeed, we were able to strengthen our European sovereignty. Sovereignty, this is a word that up until now was not commonly used in Brussels as other words. Uh, people were hesitant to talk about interests. Uh, people were reluctant to talk about a European strategy, about reci reciprocity, about European defense, of a level playing field. These were words that did not exist in uh, the curses of culture, the semantic uh, vocabulary of Europe. But today, uh, it, it, these words are on the forefront because we live in a very, um, challenging world and as such uh, European uh, sovereignty is a necessity and it's also uh, the continuation and the best guarantee of our uh, national sovereignties and many things have changed particularly in the area of defense via the creation of a European defense fund uh, via the European intervention initiative when I became uh, French Minister of Defense in 2012, uh, at the time, very few of us could have ever imagined uh, that uh, Europe would make so much progress in such a short time. Of course, on one hand, we have the terrorist attacks and also the fact that our strategic competitors have uh, bolstered their efforts and also add to that the fact that there have been uh, uh, more fragility in certain relations. Um, but all this means that today, we have a certain form of uh, European uh, strategic uh, autonomy. And also by uh, affirming our sovereignty, we also assumed other positions vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China, for example. 
and uh, we are have designated uh, China as a partner, but also as a competitor and as a systemic uh, rival of Europeans. And we took firm positions in order to filter foreign investments that uh, were set up by the European Union in strategic areas to ensure our future, be it in the area of telecoms, biotechnology, and infrastructures. In addition, together, we have set a new uh, trade uh, policy that sets clear uh, demands in terms of reciprocity and loyalty in terms of uh, trade. So much has changed in terms of affirming who we are. We are a power that is able to defend its own interests, even though we are a very open power. And under uh, the French, um, uh, France's presidency um, that will begin um, soon, um, we wish to consolidate our digital uh, sovereignty. This is a very uh, large area and it entails uh, talking about regulations and standards um, in uh, the line of um, the protection of data, but we also have other issues uh, that are going to be leveraged in order to focus on standards and regulations, the DSA and DMA regulations that we will be implementing in order to strengthen uh, our fight against illicit content um, and also to ensure that we can regulate uh, digital markets and services. Um, and this is necessary so that we can defend ourselves against cyber attacks. And I know that Ireland, for example, has recently weathered a very significant uh, cyber attack quite recently. But we also need to act in the digital area so that we can build on the industrial level and technical level this next generation of technological uh, discoveries, because this is part of our strength, this is part of our power, and this is part of our sovereignty. We need to ensure that Europe can take up that challenge and we need to ensure that at the international level, we are able to act so that we can have a free, open and secure internet. And this is the best way to avoid the double pitfall of the digital number jungle and other issues. This means that we also need to act at the international level so that we can truly be um, the, the actors of a new uh, power play, so that we can really uh, take our full-fledged position at the international level. And this is what we are doing in terms of uh, combating uh, the pandemic. France, Germany, the European Union, with uh, the World Health Organization has uh, taken up the ACTA initiative, whereby we can act uh, to ensure uh, that global uh, common goods such as health, uh, um, climate issues, um, and the health in general be taken into account. And thanks to what we have implemented, and this is uh, the COVAX uh, facility, this is an instrument that we can use so as to ensure that the entire planet can be vaccinated because this is really a planetary challenge in which Europe needs to be a, a forerunner. And this is what we have done in uh, terms of uh, tackling the pandemic. We're also doing this um, in order to ensure that there can be, um, that vaccines can be uh, produced in uh, less uh, developed countries and that any barriers to this production can be uh, removed. This is what we're doing when this morning we uh, launched a high level um, panel of experts focusing on the notion of one health. And this is necessary to ensure that in terms of health issues worldwide, 
there can be a, an IPP of um, the of health, and this is. Um, absolutely necessary so that we can make the right decisions at uh, the right time. And this is how Europe plays its role internationally by demonstrating its uh, solidarity towards other countries and also by um, uh, affirming itself as a world power and affirming its sovereignty, but also by playing its part at the international level. And this is what is multilateralism in France, Germany, as well as other uh, countries who are a member of the European Union are also um, focusing on uh, multilateralism at the global level in order to take up the challenges that lie up ahead of us and in order to take the right decisions at the right time so that we can uh, avoid having uh, power plays and uh, rivalries. And we need to open a third uh, track uh, that will rally everybody together. And that for me, uh, 2021 is um, a political awakening. It's actually a geopolitical awakening for Europe that will enable us to build uh, a path towards European sovereignty and to be able to pr project ourselves in a new manner on the international arena. And it's in this perspective, dear friends, that we are preparing uh, France's, France's presidency of uh, the first uh, half year of 2022. Sorry, I'll say it in, in English. Um, please welcome now Mr. Minister of State uh, for European Affairs, Clément Beaune, who is going to deliver his address. Thank you. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Mots pour prolonger... Just a few words to pick up on what Mr. Drian said about the issue of sovereignty and this crossroads we are finding ourselves at in Europe in 2021. Just a few words about the crisis, the current crisis, and what it has changed for us in Europe. Fortunately, we're closer to the end of the crisis than the start. And so we can take a look back and see what worked and what didn't work in this crisis and how it woke us up, how we adapted and how we can keep up the effort after these tough times we've been experiencing. And looking forward to our presidency of the EU next year. If we look at this past year with this surprising shock of COVID, we can learn several lessons. Some things worked quite well in terms of solidarity and responsiveness in Europe and others that didn't work so well, especially at the start of the crisis. So if we look at this, Simplifying things, we find that at the start of the crisis, because there was no European coordination and uh, the, uh, this pandemic was a shock for everyone, and especially for the European club, which was not prepared for such a crisis, and in particular, such a health crisis. And there were some times, especially in 
March 2020, where there was a lack of solidarity, where borders were closed in a non-coordinated, non-cooperative fashion, where sometimes we went, we were at war with each other regarding masks, and quickly, uh, EU started coordinated, coordinating its efforts. And if we look back at the last few months, we find that in those areas where there was a European competence, uh, European power, some creativity and political will, we were managed to uh, rise up to the challenge of the crisis, especially in economic terms. Um, there was the recovery plan mentioned by my colleague, and we mentioned to put together a way to help each other out, which seemed unthinkable just a year ago. And we started this with Germany and then with all 27 member states. France and Ireland co-signed this back in March 2020. They signed a tribune with seven other countries to launch this discussion on a recovery plan. And back in March, also at European level, through flexible budget rules and competition rules in terms of state helps and through the action of the European Central Bank, we came up with a collective, powerful response, more powerful than in the previous economic crisis 10 years earlier. So this is interesting. It doesn't mean that you can do everything right when you have the tools, but it shows that we can do things right. And with some discussion, with this, with the political will and uh, feistiness, we can work on this with the Germans and the European Commission. And we managed to put together this recovery plan and rise up to the challenge of this incredible crisis. And then in other areas where you had no competence, such as health, the coordination was much more difficult and slower. Um, Yves Le Drian mentioned the vaccines. Well, after the initial phase of shock, surprise, even powerlessness, we were also able to develop original frameworks for action, such as buying vaccines together. And we have been defending this actively. It showed the ability of the EU to create new solutions. And even though it was slow and there were some mistakes, probably there was true solidarity without which today in Europe, we would have 10 or even 15 countries uh, without vaccines or at uh, less favorable conditions, and we would have the inequalities we find at international level. And that's not in our moral, political, or health interest. And we managed to avoid it by taking this uh, collective response. I mentioned the borders and the tensions um, regarding fundamental health equipment. So we had a hard time coordinating. So we have to think this through to prepare for the future and to work on the fields of action in Europe that we're not prepared for. Two years ago, 
If Jean Yves Le Drian, me or my colleagues or your or the president uh, had said we have a great idea uh, for Europe for recovery, we're going to set up a, a European health agency and uh, uh, get it all together on the health plane. People would have smiled and said there are other priorities. And now it's obvious that all these topics require and deserve European concerted action. And there's something we need to think about is the distribution of competences. There were some areas where uh, the EU did most everything and other areas where it did almost nothing. We have to reassess that because you see this regarding health. We're not going to say that Brussels is going to manage our hospitals or health measures of uh, opening or closing schools or restaurants. It would not be relevant. It's not the right level of action. But for other things such as vaccines, which require important funds to be put together, that we need a European competence. We need to develop it. Jean-Yves Le Drian mentioned the incubator, the future era, a European agency that will fund research. This is something we will absolutely need at European level without putting everything regarding health under European authority. And now, I don't want to be too long, but let me mention three principles that uh, are based on these uh, first on these additional lessons and we can use to direct our action for the EU in the coming months. Jean-Yves Le Drian mentioned sovereignty or uh, um, autonomy, strategic autonomy, whatever the way you call it, we are in favor of this concept of sovereignty. And we will be needing to take action in this uh, area even more. And it's not just uh, external policy or defense or new technology like 5G, semiconductors, aerospace. We found in this crisis that sometimes sovereignty is, uh, is manufacturing ability, industrial capacity so we can ourselves manufacture health equipment that we too often outsource offshore to a couple suppliers in China in particular. So we will have to broaden this concept of sovereignty. We uh, realized this uh, when uh, we were lacking basic equipment a year ago. Also, this is uh, my own obsession. We will need to give the EU an accelerator. It's not about just being on the right trajectory. You have to be at the right speed. The EU has done many things, especially in an area that was almost non-existent at the start of the crisis. But we did it a bit late, perhaps because we're not prepared sometimes and slower than others. It's a democracy of democracies. It's a club of countries. So we want to consult each other and agree. So if we do, if we can't think this through, if we can't think of faster decision-making mechanisms, uh, 
we take the risk of uh, lagging behind other great powers such as the US or China. And there's a question I have, we can't elude, is the question of differentiation in Europe. We're a club of 27 countries. It's not gonna get smaller, but we have to be able to make decisions faster. And I believe through strengthened cooperation, structured cooperation, and perhaps political coalitions that are more agile, we need to be able to have political debates with just a few member states without excluding anyone and uh, open up to more later. For example, the recovery plan. Had we not more than a year ago started with nine countries and then through uh, the work with uh, France and Germany taken the risk to launch this idea that seemed a bit wild at the time, we would have uh, never been able to get on board the European Commission and all 27 member states who then managed to come to a consensus in the summer of 2020. But it required a spark with just a few at the start. So that's a few thoughts, a few initial lessons we could draw from this crisis we want to learn from. It will be the case in France with a view to the presidency of the European Commission next year. And we'll try to speed up the, the thinking. And I hope many of you will participate. I hope these reflections will fuel the conference on the future of Europe, which which uh, started in early May. It's online, and I think Ireland and France will be holding public political discussions as part of that. It may seem artificial, it may seem a gadget, but it's not. It's a great opportunity to think about our political priorities, our ambitions, our ways of making decisions, our democratic processes to try and be faster, stronger, and as united as we were as when we negotiated the Brexit and when we faced up to this crisis and all other challenges we faced in recent years so we can improve things further in the months and years to come. I think it's the right time to do it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, ministers, uh, for such broad-ranging addresses and uh, really insightful an analysis and for keeping to time as well. Um, please let me start with, um, with the questions and answers that are, have been coming in. Um, and I have a question first for Minister Le Drian. Um, it is from Professor Ben Tonra in University College Dublin. What are France's ambitions for the development of Europe's strategic autonomy? And how do the ministers see the strategic compass as contributing to this? Thank you for this uh, excellent question. This um, 
discussion on uh, the strategic compass is something uh, that has been initiated, initiated and um, I believe it will uh, conclude under uh, France's uh, presidency of uh, the Council of the European Union, and it is our uh, willingness to be able to achieve this um, and to implement this um, strategy. The goal is to define the priorities of our destiny and of our security. We need to ensure that the European Union uh, is able to set uh, goals for its own security and also to uh, acquire the means as well as the partnerships uh, through which Europe can uh, commit itself to moving in that direction. This is extremely important because in some time um, at NATO, there will be the definition of the new uh, strategic concept. The global security situation has much changed uh, over the past few years. Um, um, terrorism is on the rise, uh, as is uh, the rise of certain powers. Uh, China has uh, military ambitions, uh, as does Russia, and uh, new players have appeared on the scene. And this leads to uh, questions at the transatlantic level. Therefore, we need to clarify all this so that Europe uh, can acquire its own doctrine, its own identity, its own willingness uh, at the strategic level, and this uh, through um, a reasoned partnership that is clearly defined with the United States uh, and with the members of uh, the Atlantic Alliance, uh, and uh, some are not a part of it. Therefore, um, you know, such as Ireland. Therefore, we need to ensure that all Europeans are able to ensure on their own their own security. This means that at the economic level. They need to have the right industrial uh, foundations that a power such as Europe, as Europe needs to acquire. Clément Bodin, for example, gave a few examples of this. It is vital that we can um, organize ourselves in order to be able to have um, industrial mastery of uh, technologies of the future. And at some time we were lagging behind in that area, but now we need to mobilize uh, all resources so that we can compete in this area and also to have autonomy in that area. I referred to the digital issue in my previous uh, intervention, but we also need to have uh, economic uh, security and we also need to focus on, on health. Uh, in Europe, uh, we do not produce a single gram of paracetamol. We don't manufacture paracetamol. I'm not a pharmacist, but paracetamol is uh, the you know minimum uh, criteria for uh, autonomy. So we're not closing ourselves uh, to the world, but Europe uh, is no longer simply a European market. It needs to be an area that provides for production and that can anticipate production. And in, within the strategic compass, we also need to define our security concepts uh, in terms of cybersecurity, for example. And here we can uh, be at the forefront because we have the means, uh, both in terms of technology and in terms of European solidarity, to take up that challenge. This will also help us combat terrorism. We can exchange intelligence uh, and we can acquire interoperability with our armed forces. 
I'm going to give um, you an example of this to show you how far we've come and the acceleration that is currently underway. When I was Ministry of Defense in 2014 with Mrs. van der Leyen, who at the time was also a Minister of Defense of Germany, together we presented uh, a concept that's called um, reinforced uh, cooperation. That was something that had been enshrined in the Treaty of Lisbon and it enables uh, European nations to do more things collectively if they're willing to. And so we had uh, suggested having uh, reinforced uh, cooperation in the area of defense in certain areas. And who wants to work together in that area? Uh, so for example, uh, in the beginning, we were referring to areas that were not very dangerous. For example, we talked about uh, uh, military uh, medicine. We talked about working on uh, having uh, health uh, operations in the theater of war. And we were criticized. They said, oh, that's impossible. That was in 2014. And now PESCO, permanent structured cooperation, is shared by all member states of the European Union. So this shows the progress that has been achieved. And it certainly demonstrates that we are now accelerating this. And this is absolutely essential for the future. And also within the strategic compass, we will need uh, to uh, establish our uh, relations with Africa, with the Indo-Pacific region. And we also need to consolidate our relations with uh, Latin America. And, but the new priorities for us are those that I have mentioned, both in the economic uh, area and also in the area of security. And I just mentioned uh, the broad uh, lines of this. Thank you. I, I have a question for uh, Minister Boone, and I'm going to take a couple of them together. Um, the first question is from Professor Grace Neville in University College Cork. Uh, asking you, where do you think Brexit is going to lead us? And it comes together with a second question. From France's perspective, what options do you think are on the table with the UK regarding a solution to make the Northern Ireland Protocol work? Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Uh, on est dans un moment... Uh... Thank you very much. We're in a very difficult uh, moment right now with Brexit. Um, so achieving this agreement uh, indeed would close a certain chapter and a negotiation that has been tense, complex. And in terms of the implementation of this agreement, we continue to experience difficulties. And to be absolutely clear, and uh, without being controversial, but it's reality, we have difficulties because of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom uh, does not wish to completely implement this agreement. And I'm not referring to the fishing issues, which of course are very sensitive issues for France and Ireland, but uh, which illustrates uh, the imperfect uh, compliance with this agreement in that particular area. But there's another aspect that is more significant because it entails very uh, heavy questions of peace and prosperity for uh, Ireland in particular, and that's the North Island uh, Accord Protocol. And this is something that was uh, discussed at length. And before the first protocol, there's the first uh, agreement which contains uh, the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol as well as provisions uh, 
aimed at finding a certain balance, an imperfect balance, of course, because Brexit in itself creates a certain amount of friction and necessary controls. This is not the choice of uh, Europeans. It is, you know, the consequences of the Brexit. But the UK and the European Union, we have come up with this solution, which is a pragmatic uh, solution, uh, you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which uh, protects um, the markets by um, also uh, limiting the borders and by respecting um, uh, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, as well as uh, conditions that are necessary for stability. But now we need to ensure that this protocol is entirely respected. And this is our expectation from the UK. And if this is not the case, this would call into question uh, the agreements that bind us, but it would also present a danger for the European Union and for Ireland in particular, but for all of us. Uh, this is not to say that there cannot be any discussions uh, or any flexibility. Ireland, as France is open to this, uh, also with uh, the Brits. And in fact, we have uh, demonstrated a lot of uh, willingness. Uh, so the uh, vice president of the EU commission who's in charge of this has also endeavored to try to find uh, solutions in order to limit friction between uh, the Great Britain and Northern Ireland and also to maintain uh, the protocol's balance. But the central axis is the protocol. The protocol cannot be suppressed. The protocol is not the problem. It is the solution that we have come up together in order to confront this issue. And I hope uh, that we are simply um, going through a period of adjustment um, with the UK and that this does not uh, illustrate uh, a willingness uh, to provoke the European Union or to conduct a, an offensive, offensive uh, strategy this would not be acceptable. And we are still in discussions and there are contacts between the European Commission and uh, the UK. And as such, we need to uh, collectively uh, tell uh, the UK that the only way is uh, the entire application of uh, the protocol. And then after we could do that, we can discuss other modalities, but this is the only manner whereby we can ensure uh, and this is a preoccupation that is also uh, front of mind for us. This is the only way that we can ensure uh, the collective stability, the protection of the internal market, peace in Ireland. And these are sensitive issues and, uh, and we need to be uh, show collective responsibility in terms of taking up those issues. Thank you very much, Minister. Regarding corporate taxation, as you know, it's a sensitive uh, topic. How do you see Ireland's position on corporate taxation? Uh, given that Pascal Donoghue, our Minister for Finance, says that we can have healthy tax competition and that the rate of 12.5% will remain. Right. Right. I can't settle this question here and now. We may have disagreements. It happens. And we have this disagreement with Ireland on the question of taxation of companies and in particular digital companies. We believe we need to converge so we can have a single market with the free uh, competition 
and uh, strength towards the outside world. And that is one point we don't agree on, in which case we should both make efforts. And I think Ireland may do some thinking about this question and so far as the US has made efforts as regards uh, digital company taxes. These big companies make big profits around the world and they're basically offshore and they don't pay any contribution to the international community or the national communities where they work, it's not quite moral. And I think the American initiative is moral, brings more moral to the table. So that's on the table. We need to discuss this. Thank you very much. Um, I forgot to mention that this was a question from Sarah Collins in the um, Irish Independent. Um, now, I have a question for Minister Bourne. Um, faced with complex conflicts such as the one between Israel and the Palestinians, will we ever be able to arrive at a strong and unanimous response from Europe and how and at what price? I think Jean-Yves Le Drian can better answer this question uh, because he uh, worked on this question last Tuesday, if he doesn't mind. Mr. Le Drian, What do you think about the question confronted with such conflict, complicated conflicts as the one in Israel with Palestine? Will the EU be able to give a strong united response on this issue? Um, like Clément Bonne told you, the ministers of foreign affairs in EU had an extraordinary meeting on this question two days ago. And, uh, and we came up with a declaration, a statement from the high representative in charge of uh, uh, our external affairs, our foreign affairs. We meet every month to discuss our position or this or that question, like our relationship with China, uh, Russia, or Africa. And the question of uh, Israel and Palestine is at the heart of the concerns of the EU, even when we didn't have an EU uh, a foreign policy. The first statement on this dates back to 1981. It was the Venice Declaration. It was the first time the EU spoke up on the fundamental processes of a peace process, i.e. two states living in peace and recognized borders, having both Jerusalem as a capital in good harmony with their neighbors. That's the basic principles of what the EU still believes, which are unfortunately being questioned now. Two days ago, we uh, allowed the representative to speak on behalf of all 27 members to say simple things. First of all, immediate ceasefire that can be approved by the Security Council of the UN and the launch of humanitarian initiatives, especially in the Gaza Strip, and then finding the way to reopen the dialogue 
on the basis of the concept that's internationally recognized so far. So through acts of confidence, through small steps, how can we achieve a virtuous political process? Because there's a crisis because there's no political path ahead. And the EU needs to take action and we can. And I know Ireland is playing an active role in this. And I'll uh, be discussing this in a moment with my counterpart. Mr. Ministre Bon, uh, we have a question about um, the uh, lessons, or actually it's a, it's a question from Francis Jacobs, who's a, a member of the IIEA. What positive and negative lessons have the French government gained from the recent French Citizens Convention for Climate? And how can citizens be directly involved in the European Conference on the Future of Europe? Uh, we have another question that is associated to this as well in terms of, is France looking for a treaty change in what areas? What is France's perspective and, and expectations from the Conference on the Future of Europe? Well, I, I know we, we love treaty change in Ireland. <laughs> I would be cautious on that. <laughs> Uh, maybe in the, in the citizens' um, climate convention we had in France until uh, quite recently, uh, just a word to say that it was also inspired by an Irish experience, which was, I think, citizens' assembly, uh, which led under your control to constitutional changes in Ireland before. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, European democracies, including France and Ireland, are looking at complementary ways, innovative ways, to have this open citizens debate. I think we should be clear it uh, cannot, it should not replace uh, elected institutions, parliaments and so on, but it can give another uh, light, another inspirations to a public debate. And I think in Europe, we have very few moments and very few places when or where uh, there is an open political debate. Actually, it was one of the benefits, I think, of the crisis, because at the beginning, when it was very difficult and very tense, as I recall a few moments ago, uh, the recovery plan and budgets of fiscal solidarity, we had difficult political debates. But it, it's good. We need these democratic debates, even when we are not in different capitals and different countries in agreement at the beginning. And then we find compromises, even consensus, and we move on. So I think even more after the crisis, we need this moment of breeze, if I can say, uh, of opening in which, as we did in some countries for a few months, we will ask citizens panels, building on these experiences, but also European Parliament, a plenary of this conference in the future of Europe, associating national parliaments, European parliaments, member states, governments, and so on, uh, to contribute to make proposals, to make criticism, to um, put on the table some dreams, ideas, even crazy ideas. And then we will see, it's a gamble in a way, what we can do with that. President Macron, when the conference was open in Strasbourg a few, a few days ago, said we have to make a political commitment as politicians and leaders in Europe, he said, to use uh, this material, these contributions to make some legislative proposals and changes after the conference. Maybe not 100% of what would be proposed, certainly not 100% of what would be proposed because there will be also contradictory opinions. Uh, we'll uh, 
be taken on board. But we will see what priorities will emerge. We had this political experience in a different manner in France four years ago by President Macron's political movements. It was called Grande Marche, was also an interesting experience. And we saw that the priorities we sought would be the biggest citizens' priorities were not the one we mentioned. For instance, we saw we we usually think that employment security are the two main, if you look at the polls and some priorities. In this case, it was clear that it was um, gender equality and housing that came first. That was interesting because it could be taken on board in a political manifesto. Maybe we will see the same experience. Maybe we will have some surprises in terms of priorities. And then we will have to act and to say to citizens what we do with the proposals. I think it's quite sound, it's quite necessary to do it after the crisis. So it's not exactly to go directly to your question like uh, the citizens' assemblies or the climate convention we had because it's less targeted. So it's also more difficult to handle, but we will try to. Whether it will lead to treaty change or not, I don't know. And what we have said, what President Macron has said consistently is that it should not be the entry point, but it should not be a taboo. I think nobody is really interested in saying I will contribute to a debate on Europe because I have Article 320 of the treaty to, to modify. I don't think maybe for a few experts, but very few. Uh, it's not the entry point. So the entry point is migration, is climate, is health, is uh, investment, recovery, and so on. And then if in the proposals we see that there is a big push for some modifications, reforms that would need, in the end, a treaty change, let's open the door, the window, I don't know, and let's think about it, debate about it. It will not happen immediately anyway. And as we know, we would need, we would need 27 countries to agree on this, which would take time anyway. So let's not exclude it. It's, I would think it would be useless or counterproductive to make it a taboo. Uh, but let's focus on the substance. This conference is about the substance of policies. And we will see what changes would be necessary in terms of legislation, maybe later on in terms of treaty that could happen. Probably, if you want my personal feeling, in the next 10 years, we'll probably need a treaty change to facilitate decision making to adapt some policy areas and competencies as we discussed health or so on, and probably. But we can do a lot and we should do a lot before that without this big change, this big constitutional debate uh, to be pragmatic, to be concrete. And again, it's a matter of speed to prove that Europe can be changed soon and uh, efficiently. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to ask you one more question, Minister Bourne, before concluding with Minister Le Drian. We are getting a lot of questions um, asking you whether you will be discussing uh, the mandatory hotel quarantine while you are here. Alors, je crois qu'avec Jean-Yves Le Drian, nous aurons l'occasion. Jean-Yves uh, and myself um, will be discussing this uh, when we have political discussions with our counterparts in just a few moments. And that is not the reason per se for our visit to Ireland, but of course it is uh, uh, an issue uh, that is of concern to the, the French community and, uh, French other, and a few other uh, European countries. And this will be something that will be discussed 
as we uh, adapt uh, to the progress of vaccination in countries uh, in Europe, which has also greatly improved uh, recently in France, you know, uh, with the progressive and cautious reopening of uh, our countries. And so we will have this discussion, uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian and myself, with our two Irish counterparts in just a few moments, in fact. Minister Le Drian, we do have one last question. Um, should try to approach Russia in order to improve relations between the two blocs, between Europe and Russia. Does this still represent a part of French foreign policy? Yes, um, we are observing that currently, as you have observed, and as European public opinion has observed, well, Russia is uh, having a triple um, authoritarian um, drift with the Navalny uh, affair case, which is not the first one. And this has uh, led to arrests. And there have also been uh, reciprocal sanctions implemented against various European uh, personalities um, on the part of Russia. And there's also been um, a drift in terms of the very environment of Russia. And here I'm referring to the Ukraine. Ukraine. Um, there's been uh, greater threats along the Ukrainian borders with Belarus as well. And here there are many uh, actions that have been taken by Russia that are of great concern and that reflect a willingness to create instability uh, by Russia within its immediate environment. And there's also another uh, concerning change, and these are the attacks in cyberspace. So this does not uh, lead uh, or prevail for uh, a relationship of trust with Russia. Yet, and yet, I say this again, Russia is our neighbor. Sometimes you have neighbors who are a bit bothersome. Sometimes you have neighbors who are irritating. You have uh, neighbors who are noisy at night, but that does not change the fact that they are your neighbors and you can't do anything about that. Therefore, we need to note that Russia is our neighbor and Russia is not planning on moving out. Therefore, we need to maintain our ties with this uh, major country, even though there are some uh, current uh, authoritarian drifts that are occurring. And we need to maintain our ties with Russia to ensure that Russia does not turn towards um, Asia, for example. And we must ensure that uh, Russia remains firmly rooted in uh, on the European continent to which we all belong to. And so that's why President Macron has opened up a dialogue um, or tried to open up dialogue. And we are determined to continue trying to open up uh, dialogue. And this is also the position of uh, the European Union to keep an open door uh, for discussion. And of course we do this um, uh, you know, without uh, being naive about it. But this is a necessity and we need to be clear-eyed about uh, what Russia might do in those three areas that I mentioned. Thank you, Minister. I would like to thank you, Ministers, for delivering such stimulating addresses 
and covering a, such a broad range of issues in the Q&A. I would also like to thank uh, Ambassador uh, Vincent Guérin and the French Embassy for helping organize this event. And finally, my thanks go to the audience for your abundant questions. And uh, my apologies for not getting to all of them in time. Um, dear ministers, you have challenging months ahead of you. Uh, we would like to wish you the very best with the French presidency of the Council of the European Union. Ireland is very much looking forward to cooperating closely with France on the European stage on a range of issues. Um, ce fut un plaisir et un honneur personnel d'animer cette uh, discussion. Merci beaucoup et très bonne continuation pour votre visite en Irlande. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts. <laughs>